Well, good morning to you all, and happy Father's Day, and I hope everybody's going to make some phone calls or visits or something today. Uh, it's always an exciting day to be able to connect with parents. My uh, this Last week, my wife and I were in Texas for the Southern Baptist Convention. My parents live in Texas, so uh, we got to celebrate Father's Day last Sunday with my dad, which was a lot of fun, and uh, missed them today, but excited to be here in my home church today. Uh, this is a lot easier commute than some Sundays when I'm filling pulpits, and it's nice to be just down the road a little bit. I do want to bring you a couple of uh, words just this morning. First off, Pastor Paul sends his greetings. He texted me uh, last night. He was on his way to Thessalonica, I guess, as a part of the mission trip and the extended uh, stay that he's having there, and uh, appreciate the invitation. Uh, to be able to come and fill uh, the pulpit today. But uh, because we're a Baptist church, I do want to bring everybody a little bit of a report from the Southern Baptist Convention, which was this past week in Dallas. And uh, I know some of you may have been following things in the media or, or whatever. And uh, as I like to say sometimes as a Baptist, we're really good at two things. We're good at fighting and we're good at missions. So we're going to focus on missions uh, as a part of our report. Uh, and that really is the highlight of the convention. On Tuesday night at the convention, we always do the commissioning for the internet. National Mission Board. And uh, this year we commissioned 79 uh, folks uh, to the gospel all, all across the world. And uh, two of those were actually North Greenville alums from uh, the university where I had the opportunity to serve. They're students that had served uh, here in some local churches in the area and then felt called to missions. And one of the things that's always humbling about that commissioning service is how many of the missionaries are going into closed countries where they cannot publicly uh, talk about what they're doing and so forth. And so for those, they don't share the names, they don't share the countries, they just share which part of the world, like Asia or whatever. But one of the updates that we got from David Platt uh, was that uh, currently the, the country in the world that has the second fastest growing church is Iran. Let, let me repeat that. According to David Platt, the country that has the fastest growing church is Iran, which is closed to the gospel and cannot have open gospel communication. But uh, I, I got curious. Somebody after the first service said, well, what's the first? So I, I Googled it, and uh, I found another thing in Christianity Today that said Iran is actually the fastest growing church, uh, that in 1979 they only had 500 Christians they could identify, and now it's hundreds of thousands that have planted churches all across the country. Uh, another update that we got while we were there, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who serves at the International Mission Board, and uh, he said, I, I mentioned to him I may be going to Korea in the spring, and he said, do you know what's been happening uh, in preparation for North Korea possibly opening up? And uh, I said, no, and he said, the South Korean churches have opened a pastoral training center for North Korean refugees in another country there in Asia. And for the last generation, they've been preparing pastors who are North Korean expats who have converted to the gospel and are now ready when North Korea opens, they're ready to sweep back in and go back to their villages and establish churches. And these are not the kinds of things that we hear about in the media, are they? Um, but this is what I know. What I know is that God's will is always effective, and God's will is always at work, and that our calling is to be a part of what God's will is, and that is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and to encourage others to come and know Christ. And so uh, the passage that we're going to look at today is a passage that is actually about that. And so as we look at today, who will serve, how will we serve, and where will we serve, um, I want to go ahead and call our student up here, Hannah, uh, Hannah McGill, who is uh, coming to read our passage. She just 
just came back from New Orleans as well. And as I mentioned to her in the first service, my wife and I actually lived in Gentilly for three years while we were uh, in the seminary. And uh, my aunt lived in New Orleans for about 50 years. And when we lived there, she used to say, let's go out to eat every now and then. And her philosophy, and you've got to have been to New Orleans to understand this. Her philosophy was, if you're not in fear for your life when you go out to eat, then the food's not going to be worth it. Uh, did did y'all ever have any experiences like that? Just a few, you get some etouffee. Sometimes you're afraid of the food itself, right? Because it has little bugs and mud bugs and things like that in it, right? So uh, go ahead and read our scripture. Please rise for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of his thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken a tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Thank you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your words of challenge that we consider who we are and who you are. Uh, And God, thank you that we have the privilege of serving the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, and that you have called each and every one of us. And so, God, we just pray that uh, your spirit will be at work in our hearts and in our minds and our ears as we uh, consider your word this morning and that you would challenge us in how you might call us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So here in the opening of Isaiah 6, let me give you the setting. So in the beginning of verse 1, it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, and then I'll I'll pause there, uh, what's happening here is that Isaiah is calling attention to his readers uh, as to uh, what was happening at this point in history. King Uzziah had been the king for over 50 years, about 52 years, and he had been a very successful king. Uh, They had had economic prosperity. They had had religious uh, faithfulness uh, around the nation, which was surrounded by so many other nations that were often hostile to them. Uh, Uzziah had been able to create peace. And so all of a sudden, you've got peace, you've got prosperity, you've got faithfulness, relatively speaking. And as he dies now, everybody is wondering what comes next. Uh, What they're beginning to wonder is who is ultimately in control because they know who the next king is. It's Uzziah's uh, son, Jotham. Uh, They know that there are uh, opportunities here, but they also know that there are a great many threats that are here surrounding them. And so as we get in any point of history, when there is a time of great transition, it's also a time of great anxiety. 
And uh, we are kind of living in that, I think, right now. I think some of that is fostered by the way that uh, we are influenced by the media. I don't know about you, but more times than not, when I listen to the news, I'm sort of freaking out as I head out to work or something like that. Uh, when I spend too much time consuming the media and focusing on what they do, which is the cultivation of anxiety, so you will watch more media, uh, what I do is I sometimes forget about what actually is going on and what actually I should be focusing on, which is ultimately God and ultimately relationships that are around me. And so when Uzziah, is, or when Uzziah dies and Isaiah is looking at this, he's in this moment where he's wondering, uh-oh, what's going to happen? And so in that moment, then he has this vision. God lifts up his eyes and helps him to be able to see something that he has not yet seen, this vision of the way that God is seated on his throne. And so at the rest of verse 1, following on through uh, to, chapter, uh, to verse 4, we see not only who is in charge, but the reality, the gloriful reality of who is in charge. And so look at this. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling his temple. That, that train, by the way, at the end of that wedding dress a couple of weeks ago in the royal wedding, that was nothing compared to this, okay? Uh, now we see in verse 2 that there are seraphim, there are flaming angels who are uh, standing above uh, God himself, and each of those has six wings with two. They cover their faces with two. They cover their feet with two. They fly. And then one is calling out to another, and they're singing and shouting simultaneously, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who was called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And so what Isaiah sees here is this incredible vision. He's in a time of anxiety. He's kind of wondering, uh-oh, what's going to happen? And God lifts up his chin, lifts up his eyes, and he begins to see now the fullness, at least as a man can understand it, the fullness of God and all of his glory and all of his holiness here in the throne room of heaven. And so Isaiah now is beginning to see that what's happening on earth may be temporary, but this God is the God of all eternity. He may be seeing that what's happening here in his world is a time of anxiety, but he should not have anxiety because he knows that the God of the universe is here and still is on his throne. I remember one night I was in high school and I was going out for pizza, and uh, I used to be a very belligerent little guy, and uh, I ended up kind of picking a fight with a guy. It's kind of a long story. Maybe a preacher shouldn't tell these stories, but God, you know, God works in us anyways. And uh, I felt very confident that I was going to be okay in this little uh, skirmish because I had all my friends with me. Y'all, any y'all, you know, you're out, you're with you guys, you know, you kind of, you know, and uh, so I, I walked up to the guy and I was kind of smacking him, kind of trash talking him a little bit, and he finally said, "What makes you think you're going to be able to do anything?" And I said, "Me and my guys," and then I realized they had left and they were out in the parking lot at the window waving and laughing at me. And I realized suddenly that I needed to learn how to run a lot faster. So I got away from it okay. But in that moment, I was reminded that I was not nearly as big and bad as I thought that I was. And it's a good thing I was faster than he was, so it all turned out all right, I guess. But here's Isaiah, and he's looking, and he's thinking, oh, this is a bad season. What's going on here? And he realizes that it's not about him. It's not about his friends. It's not about his nation. It's not about their prosperity. It's not about their peace. It's ultimately about the God who rules the universe. 
And so in this moment, as he is confronted with this, this holiness of who God is, the reality of who he is, look what we get in verse 5. Isaiah responds and says, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so his response now to realizing who he really is, is he's a man of unclean lips, and who God is, that God is the exalted Lord God, pure of the universe. And in this moment, he just says, I'm ruined, I don't know what to do. And this ultimately should be our response when we realize who God is and who we really are. Because we like to think that we're better than we actually are. But the reality is that we a lot of times are considering who we are based on comparing ourselves to others. And I I remember doing this so many times in my life where I I would look at somebody and go, well, I'm better than they are because I don't do this. Or maybe I'm better than they are because I do do this. And it's the opposite of what they do. And when I would stop comparing myself to others and kind of thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of fancy guy here. I'm better than they are. When I would begin then to compare myself against God, I would realize that I am so far removed from God. And then I began to understand the value of humility and the usefulness that God has for us as we become humble people. And so look at verse six, Isaiah now responds and says, woe am me, I'm ruined. He's responding now in humility. And now he looks up and one of these seraphs flies up to him with a burning coal It says he had taken it from the altar with his tongues and he touched it to my mouth and with it he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. And then in this moment, he's realizing that he is now useful because of what God has done, not because of who he is. So look at verse eight. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. So see what's happened now is first off, Isaiah is looking at the opening and it's like, what are we going to do? What can I do? Nobody's in control. What's happening? Then he realizes God is in control and, and there might still be a little bit of ego left in Isaiah at that point. But as he begins to really fully understand who God is, he responds in humility. And then God takes him and says, don't worry about who you are, worry about who I am and what I have done for you. And then symbolically, he provides him here with this purging, with this restoration of his sins so that Isaiah now, when he hears the call of God and says, who shall we send? Isaiah is able to respond and say, send me. And and here's the thing that I want you all to understand and young people in particular, I want for you to understand this. God will not call you because of how smart you are or how holy you think you are, or how talented your mama tells you you are, he calls you because of who he is and what he wants to do through you. This is a completely different perspective than the way that it is in most places. I was uh, having a gospel conversation with a man recently, and he said this. He said, I can't accept Christ until I get all of my thinking straight. And I told him, that is a burden you do not need to bear. What you need to do is to accept Christ, and he will get your thinking straight. Don't don't look at these things and say, well, God, what if, or or whatever. God says, here, I've healed you, I have purged you, everything is okay, and now you can respond to me. And so as Isaiah here is saying, I will go, send me, what we have here is a pattern that is actually reflective of something that is much, much larger than just Isaiah. In fact, go over to the book, uh, well, actually, let's, let's just flip one page. So if you're in Isaiah 6, 
I want for you to look at Isaiah 7, verse 14. And Isaiah here begins to kind of prepare us for what's going to be revealed centuries later in the New Testament. So the first thing that we get here in chapter 7, verse 14, is this little verse nugget. Check this out. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, give you the people a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, anybody got any idea who that passage is about? It's a good Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. It's not a squirrel. It's Jesus, right? Uh, and notice, by the way, that we will call his name Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And so I want for you to go back to, ver to chapter 6. We're in fear. What shall we do? We shall then realize God is on his throne. And then chapter 7, we find not only is God on his throne, but God is going to send forth a child whose name is God is with us. And because of that child who comes, we will now get a new perspective. So go to Revelation chapter 4, and let's look at the book end of this. Revelation chapter 4. Uh, I, I'm an English teacher by trade, and a number of years ago, uh, I had a student who said this very interesting statement in an essay he was writing. He said, the Bible is, in my opinion, a very well-written book. I was glad to know his opinion on the Bible. I thought that was, that was kind of funny that uh, a 14-year-old would say, in my opinion, you know. So I was like, you've read two books. Thank you very much. So, um, you know, and neither of them for my class. Uh, based on your grades. Uh, so anyways, uh, as an English teacher, I, I love to come to the Scriptures. And in fact, what we find is that the Scriptures are incredibly woven together such that the Old Testament tells us things that we will now understand in the New Testament. And the New Testament reveals things to us that now we can go back to the Old Testament and we can see how these things are constantly being woven together because God has inspired them in such a way as to help us understand things. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah, not knowing about Christ, not knowing about Emmanuel, has a vision of heaven and what he is struck by is the holiness of God and his response is humility and his response then is to say, Send me. What he doesn't know is what's happening on the other side of this throne room, basically at the same time in eternity. And in chapter 4 of Revelation, we get John now in the New Testament walking with Christ, looking at this vision, again, another vision of the, home, of the throne room, and he now amplifies what Isaiah could not see and could not understand on his side. So uh, I'm going to read actually chapters 4 and 5, so just bear with me. But, but listen to these echoes that are from Isaiah and the, con the, the expansion that we have in the coming of Christ. So it says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting on it, was like a jasper stone and a sardius in his appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. 
And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And the day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne. And will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their thrones before uh, crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created." And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals?" And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because there was no one found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And then I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And, and so imagine what we've got here. Again, let, let's, let's dwell on this for a second. Isaiah, in a time of turmoil, is realizing that God is on his throne, and he looks up and he has a revelation that God is on his throne. His response is humility, and then when they say, who can go for us, he says, I will go. On the other side of the scene, we have another time of anxiety, another time of chaos. For John, Christ has now ascended into heaven. Now the persecutions have begun. Now John is on the island of Patmos. And in this time of chaos, he's wondering what's going on. And God, again, lifts up a great prophet and has his eyes focused on the throne room of God. And he looks over here and he realizes God is still on his throne centuries later, just as even now God is still on his throne. And he looks and he realizes that the reason that people like Isaiah could be sent is because of the one who sent himself on behalf of his father. And he didn't just send himself to come and serve, he sent himself to come and die for each and every one of us to redeem us of our sins. And so not only is God on his throne, but God has sent the one, Emmanuel, to live among us and be with us to teach us what it means to be able to live a life that brings honor and glory to God. And so when we live in a time of chaos and we respond in humility, we should also respond by understanding that when we respond in humility, we are doing the same thing that Christ has done. And so what that may mean is that we live sacrificially. It may mean that we live relationally. There are all these different ways that we can do that. And in fact, let me talk about Father's Day for a minute. So today's Father's Day, and I'm uh, very blessed that I have um, the, the, the great blessings of having a very godly father who's a pastor and uh, who has uh, lived a, a great life of encouragement to many, many people and so forth. And so my images of God the Father are certainly rooted in my understanding of my own uh, earthly father who's uh, given 
gives me an idea about my heavenly father and all. But go to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to make sure that all of you fathers and husbands out here are are thinking about this. So over in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to point out something. This is in the passage where we're uh, thinking about how uh, husbands and wives and marriage and stuff like that. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 5. I'm in verse 25. And, and watch how this reflects that pattern of God himself. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And so dads, husbands, how are we to relate to our wives and children? We're to do it in the same way that Christ relates back to his church which means that we are to love them sacrificially. We are to serve them sacrificially. My life's verse is 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And so husbands, fathers, we are to love our wives because God has first loved us. We are to love our children because God has first loved us. We are to serve our families because Christ has already served us, and because of his service, we have an an overflow in our lives that allow us then to be able to serve them. And so how do we serve? We serve with humility that is Christ-like. Whom do we serve? We serve the Savior who is in heaven. We serve God himself. But the third thing that I want to mention to each and every one of us this morning is where do we serve? Because a lot of times I think we go to these passages and we think, well, God's not calling me to Timbuktu, and so I don't have to do anything. But that's not, in fact, the meaning of these passages. All of us are called, and all of us are called where we are now, even as God may call some of us to go to other places. This is a sending church. Uh, One of the reasons my wife and I wanted to join this church is because for many years, we've known about how this church is a church that supports missions through the cooperative program, but it's also a church that sends out people for missions. It's one of the reasons I felt so blessed to be able to come to North Greenville is that it's a place where we glorify God. We had about 300 kids get saved last year, y'all. Uh, on that campus, uh, summer campers as well as students. It's also a place that sends students out. We probably have about 250 students that are doing summer missions somewhere this summer. And that's really awesome. But we wanted to be at a place that's like this because my wife and I both really believe that God is still a calling and sending God. And yes, he may send people out to other places, but I want to make sure that everybody understands he also calls us to where we are right now. In fact, a lot of times what happens is people aren't serving where they are now, and I think that it prevents them from hearing that call of God for some other place that they may be. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, When I was in high school, I was in 11th grade, my best friend was a senior, and uh, the reason he was my best friend was because he had a really awesome Camaro, and he drove me home after school. It was was great. He had an eight-track player with one tape, sticks, pieces of eight. We'd play it as we'd leave the high school. It was really awesome. Uh, Well, this friend of mine, Richard, was not a believer, and my dad's a pastor, and so we had a revival coming up at church. 
And um, my dad said, I want for you and your brother to pick one friend, and I want for you to pray for that friend. And so I picked Richard because I knew that he was not a Christ follower. And so every day at breakfast, we would pray for Richard. And then the next week when the revival happened, dad said, all right, now you need to actually invite him. And so uh, I was like, yes, sir, here am I, send me, I will invite my friend to church. Uh, And so on Monday, I invited Richard, and he wouldn't come. On Tuesday, I invited him, he wouldn't come. On Wednesday, it was hot dog night. So I said, we're going to have free hot dogs. He wasn't interested. Uh, The next one, some of you who are old-time Baptists will remember this. Remember we used to cut the preacher's tie off if we had an attendance goal? Um, So I told him, we're going to cut my dad's tie off. He thought we were crazy. He didn't come. Friday night was pizza night, still not interested. So he turns me down. And so as far as I knew, that was the end of the story. Now, my dad had said, we're going to pray for him. I want for you to invite him and so forth. And then my dad said this. He said, our calling is to pray and share God's responsibility as whether or not they come. Y'all follow that? Our responsibility is not the harvest. The harvest is the fruit of the Spirit's work. Our responsibility are be people who pray and who share. Now, let me complete the story for you. About four years later, I'm walking into a, a weekend Bible study thing in college, and as I go walking into the auditorium, I realize the dude is walking next to me. And I said, Richard. And he said, hey, hadn't seen you in a while. And I said, dude. And he said, dude. And I said, dude, what are you doing here? And he said, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I said, when did you become a Christian? And he laughed and he said, oh, about six months ago, I was uh, being witnessed to, and suddenly I realized that I needed to trust in Christ. And uh, I said, man, my family prayed for your salvation every day for a week. You remember why I invited you to like pizza night and all that? And he thought a minute and he said, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. And I said, my family prayed for your salvation. And he got emotional and he said, you prayed for me? And I said, yeah, not only that, I invited you to church and you turned me down. And he's like, well, that's not where I was then, but that is where he was at the right time. And so church, here's our calling. Our calling is to pray for your neighbors and for your coworkers and for your family members. Our calling is to be open with our faith and to talk to them, and sometimes, yes, to have gospel conversations with them, but our calling is also to understand that just as Isaiah got plugged into this vision that helped him to understand that all of eternity is in the hand of God, each and every one of us are called to have a part in what God's eternity is for others as well. And so, yes, we just sent a bunch of students down to New Orleans, and we heard about 10 salvations. But let me tell you, if I had not have been walking through that door at that moment on that weekend, I would never have known about the fruit of the prayers that I had prayed. And these students that we just sent to another city that, yes, they may have heard about 10 salvations, but let me tell you, there may be dozens more salvations that'll come out of it. And who knows but what somebody who was saved in that field in New Orleans might end up becoming a pastor or a missionary or a Sunday school teacher who leads even more people to the Lord. And the seeds that we sow as a church, the following that we have of God as he calls our church and calls us each individually out, all of these things are ultimately in God's economy and they are done in God's way, in God's timing, and God's will will never be encumbered and blocked. And so church, when this says, here am I, send me, don't think that this is just about going to Africa or Thailand or whatever. This is about going to the end of your street. 
This is about the community organizations you're plugged into. This is about the church that you serve. This is about the family that you live in. We are all called. It's one of the great products of the Protestant Reformation is the reminder that pastors are not the only ones called. All of us are called. And all of us are called to do what God has led us, prepared us, and designed us to do. And so as Isaiah is here and he begins to have this vision, don't let that vision be one that you think is just for people that are in the Bible or just for people that are called to do whatever. It's for you as well. And as God is calling you, even this morning, you should respond, here am I, send me to the end of my block. Here am I, send me to the cubicle next to mine. Here am I, send me to the waiter or the waitress or the curb store worker or wherever it is that God is placing you so that you can be prepared to pray for people, to have conversations with people. And who knows, God may also be preparing you for something else. We have people in this church who have been called to missions in their 50s, in their 60s, in retirement, because this is how God works. He has his timing, his ways, his calling, and he's calling each and every one of us to respond. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are a God who is not just up there juggling things, ordering the universe around or whatever, but you are the God who sent Emmanuel to be with us, for God to be with us, to show us what it means to love others, to show us what it means to have relationships with others. God, we're so grateful that we are a sending church. Help us also to be a praying church and a visiting church and an encouraging church. God, I pray even right now in this time of invitation that if there's anybody who's realized that they have not yet made a commitment to you, that you will spur their hearts to come forward uh, so that they can get into communion with the church. God, I pray that there's any, especially youth that have just come off of this trip and you're working in their hearts and maybe you're calling them to missions or to ministry or something like that, that you will help them to be encouraged to come forward, to solidify that commitment, to come forward that commitment so that they can begin the process of being trained and being mentored. So God, in this time of commitment, I pray that we will surrender everything to you and that we will respond by saying, here am I, send me. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.